The Bob Murphy Show, episode 232. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. At long last, for some of you, we are now returning to my series on Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset. So right now, this is part three of that series. We're going to do at least another one, and that probably will wrap it up, but I'm not sure. So there will be at least four total, possibly five. So let me start this one off with a little hook sort of to motivate it. Like, why are we spending so much time on this? I want to explain why is it that amongst all the different shadowy groups and nefarious figures we could be concentrating on. Why am I focusing on Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum? It's because I do think they have an outsized influence on current events. All right. So let me just motivate that a little bit. So as far as the Great Reset goes, I didn't see anybody else mention this. So I'll break it here on the Bob Murphy show. Maybe 16 other people have said it, but I, I haven't seen it yet. Just being discussed. So in the State of the Union, right near the end, when Biden started talking about, uh, you know, how everybody was exhausted with the coronavirus and so forth. Did you catch this? You know, we've lost so much in COVID-19. Time with one another. The worst of all, much the loss of life. Let's use this moment to reset. All right. So, you know, it's not completely unnatural for him to have said that, but I thought possibly it was a nod and a wink, sort of like George H.W. Bush when he talked about a thousand points of light and a lot of conspiracy types thought that that was a, a sort of subtle reference to various uh, nefarious plots and such. And also he, of course, talked about a new world order, which was pretty blatant. So let me just take a minute in case people are saying, okay, Baba, what, what's the point? Like, you, you know, you guys were guffawing at the uh, claims that Trump, for example, was giving dog whistles to Nazis and white supremacists when he was giving it to us. So what's the point of Biden doing something like this? You know, if there really is this secret cabal, why would they be resorting to transmitting messages through the State of the Union address that guys like you can easily pinpoint, right? And so here, it, this is kind of a, an interesting paradox when it comes to these investigations into secret societies and such. It's that on the one hand, if there were no evidence whatsoever, except, you know, it's just pure speculation and you were really reading the tea leaves and just you know, connecting dots that were pretty dubious, then the critics could say, well, come on, there's nothing there. You're just grasping at straws. But on the other hand, if you find things like David Rockefeller openly admitting in his memoirs that his family and he have actively worked over the years to undermine national sovereignty in the service of a global elite, then people will say, well, he didn't mean it the way you're saying it, because if he did, why would he put it into a book? Come on, give me a break. Give these guys some credit, right? So you see how that works, that it's kind of a, a lose-lose if you're a so-called conspiracy theorist. And of course, just that very phrasing is designed to make the whole thing sound absurd. When, as I pointed out, 
For example, the official 9-11 Commission report was a conspiracy theory. It said 19 hijackers conspired in the days leading up to September 11th to do their dirty deeds. The standard of count of what happened to Julius Caesar is, ready, a conspiracy theory, right? (laughs) Historians say a group of people conspired behind the scenes to take out Julius Caesar. Okay, so the mere fact that when we explain significant historical events, we might rely on a theory involving a conspiracy that should not, from the get-go, discredit it. We do that all the time. All right. Anyway, just to finish that train of thought, though, so why might it be that Biden would do something like that? So, again, I'm not putting all my chips in on this one thing. I'm just mentioning it because I I noted it when I was listening to the State of the Union. And by the way, the reason I listen to the State of the Union, normally I wouldn't do something like that. I have more respect for myself, my time. But I just recently joined Jeff Dice. I'm now sort of a junior co-host for the Human Action podcast that he does, you know, in his role as president of the Mises Institute. And that was the partly what we covered for our inaugural episode of this new retooled Human Action podcast was, you know, we were going to launch right when Biden had just given the State of the Union. So we decided to focus on that. So that's why I listened to the whole thing. Incidentally, so if you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 232, I will link to that inaugural episode just to make sure it's on your guys' radar. Okay. So just to finish that train of thought, the why might Biden do something like that? Because again, in certain instances, when people were alleging that Trump was giving a dog whistle, a bunch of us, me included, thought that that was goofy. Not just because we thought it was false, but because it didn't even make sense on its own terms. Like, what would be the point of doing that? That sort of thing. And so here, let me just say, again, I'm not putting a ton of weight on this. I just wanted to mention it, but put it you this way. Biden can't just come out and say, ah, yes, as everyone knows, my family had a lot of corrupt dealings with the Ukrainian government and energy companies. And I've got a lot of ties to the Chinese government. And also, you know, I'm hip deep in my relationship with uh, Klaus Schwab and his, and his friends. And we're all uh, advancing this agenda to manipulate world events and public opinion to weaken U.S. national sovereignty and pave the way for uh, global government. Thank you very much for your attention. He's not going to say that, right? Even if that were true. So he's got to say a bunch of stuff that superficially, prima facie, looks like he's not for the objectives of the World Economic Forum and such. So how could it be that he could reassure all the key players that, no, I really am on board, but, you know, cut me some slack here. I got to keep up appearances for the rubes that put me in office and just to make sure the natives don't get too restless. So by doing things like that, like giving a little reference to a reset, when, again, that seems like it, that's not like a normal thing that he would have said. That seems a bit artificial and it sounded funny to me then that could be a way to sort of reassure the people that, yes, I'm on board with this. Okay, don't worry. The agreements we had, the deals we cut behind closed doors or through our, you know, proxies at these various meetings and such, don't worry. I'm still going to follow through on that, even if it looks to you like I'm reneging. All right, so that could be the function of something like that. Okay, another thing from recent current events, I guess if it's current events, it's recent, You may have heard the story. So here, let me just read. There was this ostensible journalist from Ukraine. So I'm reading the HuffPost 
article. The title is Boris Johnson Rejects Emotional Plea from Ukrainian Journalists for NATO No-Fly Zone. It's by Ned Simons. So this article is March 1st. I think they're doing it the format of the, the day and then the month. So here I'll read a little bit from the article. Boris Johnson has rejected calls for NATO. So this was after Russia totally, you know, rolled in and sent in the tanks and such. Or at least that's what the media said. I've seen some people like Paul Craig Roberts saying, I think it's just missiles. We don't have any proof yet. So at least according to the official news sources that Russia is sending in columns of armor. And so here's the news story now. Boris Johnson has rejected calls for NATO to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine following an emotional appeal by a journalist from Kiev. Daria Kalniuk held back tears as she told the prime minister the West was, quote, afraid to act. Now, this is quotes. Ukrainian women and Ukrainian children are in deep fear because of bombs and missiles which are going from the sky, she told Johnson during a press conference in Poland. Ukrainian people are desperately asking for the rights to protect our sky, so we are asking for a no-fly zone. What's the alternative for the no-fly zone? NATO is not willing to defend because NATO is afraid of World War III, but it's already started and it's Ukrainian children who are there taking the hit. Okay, and then Johnson said to her, for example, this is a quote from him, when you talk about the no-fly zone, as I said to Vladimir Zelensky a couple of times, unfortunately, the implication of that is the UK would be engaged in shooting down Russians' planes. It would be engaged in direct combat with Russia. That's not something that we can do or that we've envisaged. The consequences of that would be truly very, very difficult to control. All right, so that sort of was making the rounds when that exchange happened. And again, she she was described as in the U.S. major media as a Ukrainian journalist, turns out she's got a position at the World Economic Forum. So here I'm at the World Economic Forum's website, you know, its section on people. And Daria Kalniuk, I hope I'm saying her name right, it says, Daria is co-founder and executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center, a powerful national organization that has shaped Ukraine's anti-corruption legislation and efforts. Core organization ensure that Ukraine's newly elected parliament designs strong anti-corruption legislation, blah, 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 blah. Okay, and interestingly, this paragraph consists of several sentences. Bio, the World Economic Forum of who this lady is, doesn't say anything about her being a journalist. All right. Incidentally, I want to give credit where it's due. This particular point, learning that that ostensible journalist who is, you know, giving a tear full plea to Boris Johnson to enact a no-fly zone and to say, you think you're avoiding World War III, but it's already started, to point out that she's not really, her full-time job apparently is not that she's a journalist, she's actually somebody who's got a position at the World Economic Forum. I saw that on Tim Pool's podcast. Okay, he had, what's one of his frequent, the guy's name escapes me at the moment, unfortunately, so forgive me, sir, if you, <laughs> if you hear this, but it was a guy on Tim Pool's show that made this point, and that's what brought it to my attention, so I'm relaying it now to you folks. Okay. So you say, okay, Bob, fine. So far you've got Biden's giving this apparent dog whistle. Okay. And then this lady who's in Ukraine and she's the head of an anti-corruption league. She's part of the World Economic Forum and she wants a no-fly zone as her country's getting invaded by the Ruskies. That's all you got, Bob? Okay. How about this? What if I could show you Klaus Schwab in a public forum on tape admitting that his organization that the the young leaders that he's inculcated and he's identified in his programs and then sent through world economic forum training and such have gone around and and penetrated various governments around the world like the cabinets and he even uses that verb right that's not that he said ah you know the fortunately the leaders of these countries recognize the superior training and insight that our graduates had and 
adopted them voluntarily into their program. No, he would use the word penetrate. Would that, would that be something you'd want to hear? Would it be useful? Well, good, because uh, that's precisely what I'm going to play for you right now. And I have to say, when I mention our names, like Mrs. Merkel, um, even uh, Vladimir Putin and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. But um, what we are very proud of now, the young generation like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, President of, of uh, Argentina and so on, that we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was on a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau and I know that half of this cabinet or even more half of this cabinet are actually young global leaders of the world. And that's true in Argentina as well. It's true in Argentina and uh, it's true in France now. Mm -hmm. I'm here with the president, with a young global leader. Okay, so there you have it. And incidentally, who he's talking to is that David Gergen guy who, um, you know, the conspiracy theorist guy that got banned. His first name is the same as so-and-so the great, you know, picture historical figures, some guy that conquered a bunch of territory. He was named so-and-so the great, same first name, popular commentator. It's been banned from many platforms. That guy once, I'm saying this folks partly to be funny, but also so I don't get flagged by any kind of algorithm down the road. One time confronted Gergen, who apparently had gone to the Bohemian Grove stuff. And it is hilarious if you can find it. All right. It's the person whose name is the same as that famous historical figure that's called the Great, confronts him about Bohemian Grove. And the guy's response is just hilarious. He's like, oh, You sure? I, I do not respect you. They, we, those meetings were supposed to be closed doors and you're supposed to be quiet about it. Anyway, it's a weird reaction. Like, I think the other elites took Gergen aside after that happened and said, dude, that's not how you play it. You just act like you don't know what he's talking about. What are you doing? Okay. In any event, there you have Klaus Schwab admitting in a public forum, what you would think he would keep to himself. And so again, too, I can see the critics of the conspiracy theory saying, well, yeah. So why would he admit that if he's really this nefarious guy? So again, just, I'm just pointing out the people who are trying to warn that, Hey, there's this group that is literally trying to take over the world and subvert national sovereignty through various mechanisms, what can we do? If we don't have any hard evidence, then we're accused of not having hard evidence. And if we show you smoking gun evidence of people admitting what they're doing, then it's like, well, why would they admit it if it's as bad as you're saying it is? We, there must be some context here that's missing. Okay, let me now take a digression because I think part of the problem with when people are new to these claims just so you know, folks, it's not that I came out of the womb a believer in what's derided as conspiracy theories. I didn't used to believe that stuff. And then there was a period where I thought, oh, yeah, there probably are shadowy groups behind the scenes, but we would never be able to figure them out because by definition, they would keep a low profile and, you know, they'd be smart. And so how could we ever learn about them? And I've changed my views since then that actually I think, yes, there are such groups. And if you do a little bit of digging, you can find who they are. And it's a combination of two things. I think one, the public really doesn't care in the media and such, since they're in bed with these groups, or at least the major ones, seek to protect them and to help them frame the narrative, partly because the leaders, you know, the owners and controllers of the major media are all in on it too, in various degrees. So that's partly to explain how this stuff can be sort of 
hidden in plain sight, if you will. In other words, it's sitting there for anybody who cares to look at it. For those of you who've been following my series, you'll see I'm not relying on alternative media sites for my evidence here. I'm literally just reading from the World Economic Forum's own published documents. So that's kind of what I'm getting at here. So the reason people aren't flipping out over what you would think would be bombshell revelations, it's because the media doesn't jump up and down, right? So the, the general public sort of defers. You know, the example I always go to, the New York Times during the Obama administration had a front page headline that said, Obama's, quote, secret kill list test president's principles or something like that. But it said the president of the United States had a secret kill list. I'm not paraphrasing. That was literally the headline. Go look it up if you don't believe me. New York Times, too. This wasn't, you know, some podunk newspaper in a red state. New York Times said the president of the U.S. had a secret kill list that involved the deliberations among Obama and his advisors about who we're going to put on this list that we're going to kill without a trial. All right. So you would think that would be a big deal, but it wasn't. And again, I think the point I'm trying to make here is I think the reason it wasn't a big deal, it's not so much that the average person thought, oh, I don't care if the president has a secret kill list. It's that they would have thought if this really is as big a deal as it seems to be, surely somebody would do something like the ACLU or so, you know, somebody would be flipping out and, you know, all the major journalists and stuff would be outraged and hold these politicians' feet to the fire for their gross violations of civil liberties, right? So there's this sort of deferred or, or delegated responsibility where the average person says, no, I'm, you know, I go to work, I take my kids to soccer practice, we got bills to pay, I come home, I'm exhausted, I just want to watch the ball game. I can't be in charge of making sure the president isn't violating my civil liberties. That's not my role in this division of labor. Other groups are supposed to do that. Right. And so I think that's part of it. It's sort of like with Watergate. In the grand scheme of things, Watergate was not a big deal. U.S. presidents have been caught doing way the heck worse stuff, lying about way the heck worse stuff than Watergate. And yet Nixon eventually had to resign. And I think it was just because the press turned on him and didn't drop it. And they just decided, no, you're done. Okay. And we can speculate as to why do they turn on him and so forth. But I think that's the way to explain that. So there's that element. That what the media chooses to focus on defines what people talk about or sets the agenda. And so these groups can openly admit this kind of stuff. And if the press doesn't follow up on it, if it's not brought to your attention daily, you know, so you got guys like Glenn Beck talking about Klaus Schwab more than I do. And so his following likes it, but it doesn't gain too much traction in the broader conventional media. And so that's why for the average persons, you know, they might not still even know who Klaus Schwab even is. So there's that element. And then I think another thing too, though, is as to like, why would they openly admit this stuff? That's what I'm trying to explain here. It helps them recruit people, right? So it's not that everybody involved with this stuff behind the scenes is twirling their mustaches, you know, laughing like Dr. Evil over what they're doing. Many of them, I think, sincerely believe they're working to make the world a better place. And so to the extent that they're transparent, at least somewhat about what they're doing, that helps get more people on board. So they don't feel like they're working for this secret cabal trying to subvert democracies around the world. It's like, well, well no, we, we told everybody what we were doing. So, you know, <laughs> what do you want? All right. So here, let me just give you an example of what I mean. I'm going to focus on this guy, Strobe Talbot. So if you don't know who he is, uh, I'm just reading from his Wikipedia page. 
So Nelson Strobridge Talbot III, born in 1946, is an American foreign policy analyst focused on Russia. He was associated with Time Magazine and a diplomat who served as the Deputy Secretary of State from 1994 to 2001, right? So that would have been under the Clinton administration. He was president of Brookings Institution from 2002 to 2017, right? So this guy is seriously plugged in into the foreign policy arena, right? So this is not just some random commentator on Mother Jones or something. This is a connected guy. He's deputy secretary of state under Clinton. And then again, head of the Brookings Institution for 15 years, all right? So when he was connected with time, let me just read a little bit from an article he wrote. So the title is America. So this is from July of 1992, authored by Strobe Talbot. So the title of this time article is America Abroad, the Birth of the Global Nation. All right, let me just read some excerpts from this piece. The human drama, whether played out in history books or headlines, is often not just a confusing spectacle, but a spectacle about confusion. The big question these days is which political forces will prevail, those stitching nations together or those tearing them apart? Here is one optimist's reason for believing unity will prevail over disunity, integration over disintegration. In fact, I'll bet that within the next hundred years, and he's got in parentheses, I'm giving the world time for setbacks and myself time to be out of the betting game just in case I lose this one. Nationhood as we know it will be obsolete. All states will recognize a single global authority. A phrase briefly fashionable in the mid-20th century, and he's got a dash, citizen of the world, dash, will have assumed real meaning by the end of the 21st century. So he goes through and he's describing history and you know what's been happening and how nation states have been gobbling up their weaker neighbors and things like that, might makes right and so forth. The main goal driving the process of political expansion and consolidation was conquest. The big absorbed the small, the strong the weak. National might made international right. Such a world was in a more or less constant state of war. From time to time, the best minds wondered whether this wasn't a hell of a way to run a planet. Perhaps national sovereignty wasn't such a great idea after all. Dante in the 14th century, Erasmus in the 16th, and Grotius in the 17th all envisioned international law as a means of overcoming the natural tendency of states to settle their differences by force. So then he keeps going talking about Hume and Thomas Paine and Immanuel Kant. And then check out this. But it has taken the events in our own wondrous and terrible century. So he's talking about the 20th century. He's writing this in 92. To clinch the case for world government. With the advent of electricity, radio, and air travel, the planet has become smaller than ever, its commercial life freer, its nations more interdependent, and its conflicts bloodier. The price of settling international disputes by force was rapidly becoming too high for the victors, not to mention the vanquished. That conclusion should have been clear enough at the Battle of the Somme in 1916. By the destruction of Hiroshima in 1945, it was unavoidable. Once again, great minds thought alike, Einstein, Gandhi, Toynbee, and Camus, all favored giving primacy to interests higher than those of the nation. So finally did many statesmen. Each world war inspired the creation of an international organization, the League of Nations in the 20s and the United Nations in the 40s. Okay, and then uh, here, I'll, I'll just do one more. You guys have got the point, but let me just give you one more. The plot thickened with the heavy breathing arrival on the scene of a new species of ideology, expansionist totalitarianism, as perpetrated by the Nazis and the Soviets. It threatened the very idea of democracy and divided the world. The advocacy of any kind of world government became highly suspect. 
And by 1950, and then in quotation marks, one worlder was a term of derision for those suspected of being woolly headed naifs, if not crypto communists. All right. So then he explains how the idea of being an advocate for global government that fell into disrepute at that point during the Cold War. Okay. So you can see where he's coming from, right? He's openly saying, yeah, why wouldn't we want to have one global authority? Look at the record of having decentralized individual nation states running certain you know, jurisdictions on planet Earth. It just led to you know, hundreds of millions of, of deaths. This is crazy. And more generally, so this, this is me now speaking, I'm not paraphrasing Talbot. Unless you're an anarcho or an anarchist, you don't need to be an anarcho-capitalist, you can be an anarcho-socialist, I suppose. But unless you're an anarchist, you believe in political authority, at least in your you know, jurisdiction, you know, for a certain area around you where you live, and you probably advocate the same for every human being. And so the same reasons that you think, oh, it wouldn't work if every street had its own government, right? If, if you're for the existence of, of a government to impose law and order, at least, you know, at the size of a city state, perhaps even bigger, depending on your own personal views, right? But you don't, you probably think, right? Again, unless I'm you know, I know many of you are literally anarchists, but for those of you who aren't, right, you think it wouldn't work. It certainly wouldn't work if every household were its own kingdom. You think that would be impractical. There'd be massive gang violence or strong men would fill the power back, whatever. Warlords would take over. So nobody would be there to build roads because everyone would be just like, oh, how can we do it without someone taking our money at gunpoint and forcing us to pour concrete and cement and so forth? There's... I mean, how would we know where to put the yellow lines? Would they even be yellow? Who knows? Without the barrel of a gun pointing at us, how can we get anything done? No roads, right? So if you are not an anarchist, that's what you think. And so just take that logic to its conclusion, right? If you think it wouldn't work for Houston to not have a, you know, a mayor that imposed a single rule of law, legal code on all the people who live in Houston, if you think that would be, you know, it would be unwieldy or crazy or whatever to have anarchy in Houston, well, then why do you think it's okay if there's, in a sense, anarchy vis-a-vis -vis the national governments? How can it be that the U.S. government can exist side by side with the Mexican and the Canadian if you don't think that different homeowners associations could exist peacefully side by side in the area we now call Houston? All right, so... I didn't just give you a knockdown argument, but my point is I'm sort of flipping Walter Block's point. Walter Block tries to make the case for anarcho-capitalism. And one of his arguments is to say, those of you in my audience here who are not yet anarchists, I'm assuming you don't agree that the world needs one global government over all earthlings. You're willing to tolerate multiple competing governments over different jurisdictions on planet Earth. And so all I, Walter Block, I'm saying is take that to its logical conclusion. If you think it works, that not every human being has to have the same government, well, then why do you think every U.S. citizen has to have the same government? Why do you think every Texan has to have the same government? Why do you think every Houstonian has to have the same government? Why do you think everybody in this neighborhood has to have the same government? All right, so that's the way Walter Block hits it. But I'm saying a strobe Talbot type could take it the other way. In fact, he did take it the other way. He was saying the logical conclusion of, you know, the enlightenment and such, and he wasn't forcing this reading. He was quoting many of those classic figures was to say that, yeah, wouldn't it be great if everybody were a citizen of the world and we just had a representative democracy overall of planet earth. And then wouldn't that eliminate conflict? There'd be no need for war anymore. 
right? That's one of the standard arguments for why do you need to have a, a regular government, right? Is to say, oh, because if you didn't, there'd be gang warfare. There'd be constant bloodshed. You need to have one group that is the undisputed master lays down the law literally and keeps the peace. And so if any little group gets uppity, then the forces of law and order come in and throw them in cages and just settle it. And that's what keeps the peace and makes society possible, right? So that's the vision of those who are not anarchists. And so that's what Strobe Talbot is saying applies to the planet as a whole. So more generally, you say, why am I focused? I'm just, I'm picking him because nobody can deny that that's his view. He openly published it in Time magazine, right? So this isn't that I'm reading something from his diary or, you know, digging up dubious quotes attributed to him. Because there's lots of like quotes about the globalists and their agenda that floats around the internet. And some of them are accurate and some are, you know, I've seen debunkings of them. So that's why I'm not getting into that stuff. But I grabbed the Strobe Talbot one because he openly talked about it in time, right? So nobody can deny. And like I say, he's, he's a, somewhat of a big deal. He's not just some random guy publishing on an obscure website. Hey, everybody, just your usual reminder. If you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, so again, the reason I went through that digression is to show it's not absurd to think a lot of smart, well-meaning people actually believe that Klaus Schwab and his advocacy of the Great Reset and these other people who are involved with the effort to, I claim, undermine national sovereignty and replace the existing global order with a new one that's more of a technocracy run by the elites rather than being dependent on the people holding periodic popularity contests in each region of the world. I mean, that's a stupid system, right? We can all agree. And so these elites are saying, why don't you let us just run things? It would be so much more efficient. Everybody would be better off. What are you doing? This is for your own good. And like I say, now going back to the earlier point I was making, a lot of them can rest assured at night that we're not even sneaking this in. We're openly admitting what we're doing. We have, we publish our proceedings. We release the papers to the public. We're making a whole video series talking about it. So that we're not, you know, trying to sneak this through anything. So there you go. All right. So I'm, I'm trying to, in case you're just saying, oh, come on, I don't believe this stuff. There, when there's not enough evil people in the world. I'm saying they don't think they're evil. The higher up in the chain you get, the more those people know they're lying. But again, they could justify it by saying, hey, sometimes you got to lie to help people. They probably view it like, you know, the, a parent who tells the kid about Santa Claus or, you know, the example I like is when you're sort of like, if you want to get your kid to leave the park, you start walking towards the car. You say, okay, I'm going, see you later. And then the kid's like, oh, and runs. That you know you weren't actually going to get in the car and drive away and leave the four-year-old in the park. but instead of grabbing the kid or threatening him or whatever, you know, like, come on, we're going right now. Like just to just start walking away. Like, it's like sometimes that works. So that sort of mentality could explain some of these, let's call them globalists, that they think we genuinely know better what's best for the masses because we've studied this stuff. We're more intelligent. And so, yes, we have to engage in a little bit of deception in order to help them. We're perfectly justified in doing that, just like the parent thinks. Sometimes I got to trick my four-year-old into letting me help them. 
Okay, why don't I wrap up this episode by now just reading a little bit from, so the, the book I'm now covering, and I'll go into greater detail in part four of this series, the title is COVID-19 colon, The Great Reset. It's by Klaus Schwab and Thierry Malloray, or Malloret, I don't know how to pronounce that name. So we all know who Klaus Schwab is. And then this Thierry Malloret is uh, the managing partner of the Monthly Barometer, a succinct predictive analysis provided to private investors, global CEOs, and opinion and decision makers. His professional experience includes founding the Global Risk Network at the World Economic Forum and heading its program team. He was educated at the Sorbonne, da-da-da, in Paris, in Oxford. He holds a master's degrees in economics and history and a PhD in economics. All right, so he is a co-author with Klaus of this book. So this book came out, it was a surprisingly quick turnaround. So the book came out in July of 2020, right? So remember, most of you probably hadn't even heard of coronavirus until March of 2020. And so then just a few months later, Klaus comes out with his book saying, oh, COVID-19, this is why we need a great reset. So you can do with that timing what you will. So let me just read to you from the introduction so you get a sense of what's going on in this book. And then, like I say, I think that's a good point for me to stop. And then in part four of this series, I'll go through and highlight some key aspects from this book. Okay, so from the introduction, they say, it is our defining moment. We will be dealing with its fallout for years and many things will change forever. Talking about the coronavirus pandemic. It's bringing an economic disruption of monumental proportions, creating a dangerous and volatile period on multiple fronts raising deep concerns about the environment and also extending the reach, pernicious or otherwise, of technology into our lives. Later on, but deep existential crises also favor introspection and can harbor the potential for transformation. All right. The fault lines of the world now lie exposed as never before, and people feel the time for reinvention has come. And so I just put in my margin there, no. Right. So that's a, a popular or a typical move that Klaus makes is he keeps saying how, oh, yes, people want this. Like he's just saying it matter-of-factly, like to try to make it true when, no, they don't. The public is not calling for a great reset. This is engineered. Okay, as of the time of this writing, June 2020, the pandemic continues to worsen globally. Many of us are pondering when things will return to normal. The short response is never. Okay, and radical changes of such consequence are coming that some pundits have referred to a before coronavirus, BC, and after coronavirus, AC era. Right, so he's really laying it on thick that everything's changed now. And he gives some historical examples of the you know, plague of Justinian and so forth and how that altered the Byzantine Empire, the Black Death, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Epidemics are by nature divisive and traumatizing. What we are fighting against is invisible. Our family, friends, and neighbors may all become sources of infection. Those everyday rituals that we cherish, like meeting a friend in a public place, may become a vehicle for transmission. And the authorities that try to keep us safe by enforcing confinement measures are often perceived as agents of oppression. Okay. He talks about how the Black Death, ironically, was perhaps an agent of good social change. Right. The changes were so diverse and widespread that it led to the end of an age of submission, bringing feudalism and serfdom to an end and ushering in the era of enlightenment. Put simply, and this is a quote from someone else, the Black Death may have been the unrecognized beginning of modern man. And now this is back to Klaus and his co-author. If such profound social, political, and economic changes could be provoked by the plague in the medieval world, could the COVID-19 pandemic mark the onset of a similar turning point with long-lasting and dramatic consequences for our world today? 
Okay. So you, you see what they're doing. Don't let a crisis go to waste. So he does, or they do admit, this is on page 17, we must beware of superficial analogies. Even in the worst case horrendous scenario, COVID-19 will kill far fewer people than the great plagues, including the Black Death or World War II did. But still, he's saying, this is still going to transform the society and we should not just sit back and let things transpire. We should steer it. Okay, uh, here we go. This is page 19. The broader point is this. The possibilities for change and the resulting new order are now unlimited and only bound by our imagination for better or for worse. Societies could be poised to become either more egalitarian or more authoritarian or geared towards more solidarity or more individualism, favoring the interests of the few or the many. Economies, when they recover, could take the path of more inclusivity and be more attuned to the needs of our global commons, or they could return to functioning as they did before. You get the point. We should take advantage of this unprecedented opportunity to reimagine our world in a bid to make it a better and more resilient one as it emerges on the other side of this crisis, right? So again, not having to put words in their mouth. They're openly saying, let's seize this opportunity to reset everything. Okay, and now let me just end with this because they're going to outline the structure of the book. This volume is a hybrid between a light academic book and an essay. It includes theory and practical examples, but is chiefly explanatory, containing many conjectures and ideas about what the post-pandemic world might, perhaps should, look like. It offers neither simple generalizations nor recommendations for a world moving to a new normal, but we trust it will be useful. The book is structured around three main chapters, offering a panoramic overview of the future landscape. The first assesses what the impact of the pandemic will be on five key macro categories economic, societal, geopolitical, environmental, and technological factors. The second considers the effects in micro terms on specific industries and companies. And the third hypothesizes about the nature of the possible consequences at the individual level. Okay, and so then like chapter one is called macro reset. Then the next one is called micro reset. And then the last one is individual reset, right? So you get the idea. It's talking about resets at those different levels. So in next installment of this series, I'll focus mostly on the economic one and also a little bit on the individual one, the macro economic one. I don't, I don't care so much about their insights or predictions about the impact on specific industries. So there you have it. Again, Schwab and his buddies have had this stuff in the works for decades. You've heard, you know, his, how proud he was that his global leader initiative and such had penetrated cabinets around the world. And here, whether you think coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 was a completely independent thing and these folks just took advantage of it or whether you think they saw it coming or whether you think it was deliberately engineered, my case right now doesn't depend on your view as to the origin of this thing. Clearly, they are using the pandemic to try to reshape the global order and they're not making any bones about that. They're openly admitting that's what they're doing. And so when you see government officials or major media cling to certain policy measures, for example, even though it's like, well, it doesn't seem like that is relevant anymore. Why, why are they doing that? It's because of stuff like this, right? So that w what seems to be the surface explanation or justification for certain things is not the real reason. They're pushing for things they wanted for other reasons and they see the opportunity to tie it to the response to a pandemic. Now that the public is back on its heels and confused and bewildered, now is the time that they're going to push through all sorts of change. 
that would not have been tolerated in a more stable era before the pandemic hit and the threat of World War III and et cetera, et cetera. Okay, folks, I will wrap it up there. Thanks for your attention and tune in next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.